I say, would you mind um, awfully getting out of the way? I say, not until you pay the toll. Toll? What toll? Well, toll you pay for crossing my bridge. I'm not paying any toll. This bridge is on my family's land. Well, used to be my family's land. Hey, hey, then you're, you're Robin of Loxley. <laughs> yeah. And whom might you be? Oh, they call me Little John. Hey, yeah, but don't let my name fool you. In real life, I'm very big. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Well, hello, and welcome back to the Varmints Podcast, where every week we do a whole bunch of research to educate ourselves and you, the listener, on all things that creep, crawl, slither, fly, jump, hop, and swim on this planet, one animal at a time. My name's Paul, and I am not an animal expert. I'm Donna, and I am also not an animal expert. Today, we are talking about the wonderful, lovely spring visitor, Dee Robin. Yay! But first, the news. This is Varmin's Headline News with your anchorman, some guy named Paul. Thank you, Matthew. It is spring here in the Northern Hemisphere, and bird migration is happening, or is, you know, just about done happening at this point. I think it's still happening. Yeah. As the snow melts and recedes, upland areas become available for feeding, and where the food is, is where the birds are going to be. And one of the species returning is the American robin. Yes. In North America, where Donna and I are, that begins in mid to late February and lasts through May. Yep, and in Colorado, it could be even a little bit longer because, you know, we could get snow in Colorado in the high country up to early June, so... Oh, interesting. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, whether you are here in the United States or you are over in Europe, you might be thinking about putting a bird feeder out. So I asked my friend Susie, who is the host of the Casual Birder podcast, to give us and you a few little reminders about bird feeders. And this audio is a a few minutes long, but it's really, really interesting. So just hang in there and uh, I promise you're going to you're going to enjoy this, especially if you want to put a bird feeder out. It's I think it's really informative and educational and interesting. So here she is. It's Susie here from the Casual Birder podcast with some tips for feeding your backyard birds. Providing food for your backyard birds encourages them to stay longer in your outside space, giving you lots of opportunities to get to know them better. But feeding birds comes with responsibilities too. These are the key points to consider when choosing to feed your backyard birds. The food and feeder type, and this depends on what birds you already have visiting and those you hope to see. The placement of feeders, make sure the birds feel secure while feeding by having shrubs available nearby. Unless it's a window feeder, keep it away from windows to avoid the possibility of birds flying into them. Feeder hygiene and cleanliness is extremely important when you're allowing lots of birds to congregate together. Clean the feeders every couple of weeks with soap, water and dedicated brushes. Soak them in a dilute bleach mixture and thoroughly air dry before refilling the feeders. 
If you see a sick bird at the feeder, such as having difficulty swallowing, with discharge round its eye or bill, or a bird that doesn't show fear when you approach, you need to take action. Take down the feeders, throw away the food, and thoroughly disinfect the feeders. Check with your local bird organisations to see if you need to report the sick birds. And make sure you always thoroughly wash your hands after touching food or feeders. So I mentioned that different types of birds have different feeding requirements. So I'm just going to go through a few of those tips now. But for further information, go to Project Feeder Watch at feederwatch.org and you can find lots more information there. So there are lots of different types of feeders. Ground feeding trays or bird tables are best for birds that prefer to feed on level surfaces. So birds like doves, sparrows, jays, towhees and grosbeaks in America and in Europe, wood pigeons, collared doves, European blackbirds, robins, thrushes and house sparrows. You can put all sorts of food out on these ground feeding trays. Mixed seed, chopped nuts, soaked raisins, dried mealworms, all sorts of birds will like eating from them. The advantage of them is it's an open space. It allows several bird species to feed at once. It can be at ground level or on a picnic table or a dedicated bird table. And they usually have a lip around them to stop seed falling off and flying everywhere. The disadvantage is that they're open to the elements. Even bird tables with roofs, the food will get wet. So the food is liable to go mouldy or sprout. Bird droppings might contaminate the food and squirrels and other animals can easily get access to the food. So my tip for ground feeding trays is only to put out a handful or two of food at a time and clean regularly. Don't leave food on the feeders overnight. Tube feeders, these are hanging feeders with holes in the side, usually with perches attached. You can get them with two, four or six ports. These are suitable for birds such as finches, like goldfinches, American goldfinches, chickadees and titmice in North America, and European goldfinches, greenfinches and blue tits in Europe. Best foods for tube feeders are black sunflower seeds and sunflower hearts. I find sunflower hearts are beloved by most bird species. The advantages of a tube feeder is that it holds several days worth of food at once and mostly will keep it dry. But the disadvantage is mould can occur if the seed gets wet and the tubes will start to clog up. So my tips are to shake the feeders daily to dislodge any food that gets stuck. Some food will fall on the floor when you do this, but it will quickly be eaten by the ground feeding birds. If after a week the seed is not being eaten, throw it away and start with fresh, making sure you clean the feeder in the meantime. It probably means that the food has gone mouldy. You can also get Niger feeders for goldfinches. This is black thistle seed and it has very small holes in it to allow just the goldfinches to get access with their specially designed conical beaks. Again, it can take some time for them to find out you have this food available. And I have found in the past that that seed will also go mouldy quite quickly. So if you've had seed in a tube for a while and it doesn't look like it's being used, chances are it's gone mouldy. So throw it all out, clean the feeder tube and start again. Suet feeders are a great way to bring in woodpeckers, nuthatches, chickadees in North America and blue tits, great tits and long-tailed tits in Europe. You can buy a suet block and put it in a cage holder or you can get suet logs that can be put into a pre-drilled branch. Don't use mesh bags. Sometimes you see suet balls sold in mesh bags 
but don't use these if you get the suet balls then undo the bags and put the balls in another container because birds can become trapped in the mesh also you'll find different qualities of seed so some of the suet feeders aren't very high percentage of suet and may have filler things like sand in the blocks or in the balls to make it go further this isn't great for the birds so make sure you do buy quality food if you can the advantage of the suet feeders is it brings in a greater diversity of species but a disadvantage is in warm weather suet can go rancid so it's best left for the winter or use the suet that's designed for year-round use in the winter you can make your own suet feeder by mixing beef suet with seed and dried millworms and you can stuff this into the branches that you use in the summer or you can use coconut shells hollowed out and put the mixture in there. Peanut feeders. So you can feed whole peanuts in a peanut feeder or you can get chopped peanuts. Chopped peanuts would work better in a tube or hanging feeder. Peanut feeders for whole peanuts are usually with a large mesh grill and it allows the birds such as chickadees, titmice and woodpeckers to hang on the side and peck through taking small pieces of nut. Don't feed whole peanuts during the breeding season as they may be a choking hazard for nestlings. If the nuts get wet, they can grow a mould that's toxic to birds. So do keep an eye on that and don't fill the feeder all the way to the top. Just fill it to halfway, otherwise you'll find you're wasting food. Hummingbird feeders. We don't get these in the UK, so I'm very envious. Hummingbirds use these along with Orioles and some Warblers. Always use the recommended sugar water recipe and you can find the recipe at Feeder Watch. The advantage is they give hummingbirds a much needed supplement, especially first thing in the morning or in colder weather. But the disadvantage is it, the, the liquid can go mouldy. So clean out feeders immediately if you see black mould or if the water seems cloudy. Don't ever use food colouring in the water because it can be toxic to the birds. So when buying seed for the birds, don't be tempted to buy a giant bag of seed from the big box store because it might seem like a good investment, but likely there'll be lots of filler seed in there that will be ignored by the birds and it will just be dumped out of the tube feeders or flung out of the feeder trays when they're trying to find the food they want. And you'll end up with a mess that will either sprout or go mouldy under the feeders. On that point, it's a good idea to move feeders around the garden occasionally so that you don't always have them in the same spot, building up old food underneath. There are mixed opinions about whether you should feed only through the winter or to feed year round. I live in the UK and feed my birds year round, but I change the proportions of what I offer depending on the season. But check first that you're not prohibited from feeding birds by building covenants or local laws. Once again, the feederwatch.org is a fantastic resource with lots of additional information on feeding birds. So I hope that you have fun feeding them and I'm always keen to hear what birds people are seeing, no matter where you are. So do let me know if you get any new or exciting birds to your garden. So I want to thank again Susie from the Casual Burger Podcast for submitting that audio. And I hope you learned something from it. I hope you found that as interesting as I did. And uh, yeah, if you want to go put a bird feeder out, there are some, some nice little hints and tips and tricks for you. Hints and tips for the burb feeder. Woohoo! <laughs> Woohoo, happy spring. Uh, just a reminder, everybody, go to varmints.podbean.com for links to our audio and our show notes for today's episode. We're also on Twitter and on Instagram at, at varmintspodcast, all one word. 
And we're at varmintspodcast at gmail.com for questions, comments, stories, and suggestions. We have a Pinterest board that's run by a Varminion whom we adore. So pop over there and put Varmints into the search engine to look at our boards. And if you want some Varmints merchandise, go on over to Redbubble. Do the same thing. Put Varmints into their search engine and you'll see our stuff. You can get a coffee cup or a cell phone cover or leggings. Well, they're leggings for weird reasons. <laughs> there you go. If you like the show, why not tell a friend about us and introduce them to the podcast where everywhere podcasts are found and word of mouth has the very, very best way to help us grow. Now, let's go and learn about some Robins. Hey! Hey! Let's go get educated on some animals. I know you wanna. Yes, we are talking about the American robin and the European robin today. There are other birds with robin in their names, but the majority of our listeners are going to be familiar with one or both of these birds. The American robin is a migratory songbird that is found throughout North America. They are the most abundant bird in North America. And at any given time, there are around 400 million American robins flying around. It's amazing. They're the leaders of the parking lot birds. <laughs> <laughs> there are seven subspecies of American robin, the eastern, southern, western, northwestern, uh, Newfoundland, San Lucas, and Mexican robins. The European robin is found all across Europe and down into North Africa. There are no subspecies of the European robin. So even there, even though there is some variation in size and color, there are no distinct little populations of these robins whose characteristics are so much alike that anyone could call them a subspecies. Mm, I see. American and European robins are related in name only. They belong to two different bird families. The uh, American robin, as we said, is migratory. The European robin is sedentary. They also have two very, very different calls. So here's the call of the American robin. That is so familiar. (laughs) I hear that outside my window every morning right now. Yep. Nice. Do you, do you have the little twirdler twirder twirts down there? Do you have them in Florida? I can't remember. Uh, we don't have robins. They don't come down far this far south. They're like, oh, it's too hot down there. Ugh. Too hot. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't blame them. <laughs> they get to a certain point and they're like, nope, that's Florida. We're staying yeah, out. <laughs> we're turning around. <laughs> that place is scary. That and place I is don't way blame too them. hot. <laughs> <laughs> They have really big snakes. Yeah, yeah. Lots of (laughs) reptiles. Here's the call of the European robin. That's a pleasant sounding little bird. Yeah. They're a lot smaller than the American ones, aren't they? They, they are. They're about half too. the size of the. Yeah, yeah. They're about half the size of the American robins. <laughs> so the American robins can grow to be uh, between nine and eleven inches, which is twenty-three to twenty-eight centimeters long, with a wingspan of twelve to sixteen inches or thirty to forty centimeters. Yeah. 
Yeah, and European robins grow to be about exactly half that size. Wow, that's crazy. And I don't think I've, I don't think the ones that I've got in our little complex here are that big. They're maybe four or five inches tall, but you know, sometimes three inches kind of depends. But I have seen some bigger ones, but right now all the ones that are in our little complex are just sort of bouncing around going, we are robins and we're happy. But they're not like the big, <laughs> they're not like the big chonkers. So <laughs> they're a beautiful bird. They are so pretty. Both both their species plumage. are really neat. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. across both species, their plumage is sort of a mottled black and brown and white. But both robins have this bright red uh, or orange uh, breast breast feathers. Yes, really brilliant. I'm, I'm going to talk about that. Yeah. The European robin's original name was Redbreast. And then in the 15th century, there was this sort of trend of giving human names to different animals. And I couldn't find out why that was. But they, that bird was called Robin Redbreast. And then that got shortened again to Robin. They didn't keep the Redbreast. They just called them Robins. Now, when the English settlers in the New World encountered the American Robin, that red plumage on the bird's chest reminded me of their robins back home so they called those birds robins yep male and female robins are just called male and female robins and their babies are called chicks and you get your choice of plural noun so there's uh let me see there's like 10 of them so you get to you get to choose your favorite okay so we have a blush of robins a bobbin of robins which might be my favorite a breast of robins, a carol of robins, a gift of robins, a reliant of robins, a riot of robins, a rouge of robins, a round of robins, and a ruby of robins. Mm, I think a bobbin of robins has to be it, just because. I like bobbin of robins. That will be the official plural noun of the Varmints podcast for robins. Bobbin of robins! (laughs) Although I can understand why they have a carol of robins, because they are very melodic. Yeah, that, okay. I was wondering about a carol of robins. Is it C-A-R-O-L, carol? Yeah, C-A-R-O-L. Okay. Yeah, I I think that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Because they have a pretty little song. Now I wonder why you know, where a riot of robins came from. I don't know. That sounds... (laughs) I don't know. I never see them in groups, though. I only see, like, individual little robins, so... I I don't imagine that they flock together all that much. They really don't, do they? I I think it's probably just a human, like, nod to that there's a lot of robins in this area, maybe? Is that... Kind of makes sense because they don't Maybe. really sure don't really hang out with the robins too much, do they? Just their just their mate, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, they take care of their babies. And they hang out. <laughs> they hang out and they make pretty songs. Yes, they do. Yeah. All right. So you're probably wondering. So why does the robin redbreast have such a red breast? Aren't you? Don't you wonder? Donna. Why do robins have such a red breast? 
Although nobody really knows, but there's some ideas. Okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so first, uh, both the male and the female robins, I believe of both species, look, they have a, a red breast, reddish-orange breast, all year round. And it, But it stands out more in winter over in Britain because the European robins over there, they, they are, as we mentioned, not migratory. They still hang around during the wintertime, so they stand out a lot in the in the winter. And for a small bird, you would think, like, why do you want a large red target on your, on your chest? <laughs> because that makes you really good prey for sparrowhawks or cats or, you know, over here, hawks and falcons and things like that. So why would you even do that, right? One theory is that it's about choosing a mate. They explain that it's to do with predation. If a bird is has bright, bright feathers, predators can spot it more easily. And this means that in the breeding season, the weaker males will have been picked off. <laughs> and the only ones that are left are those that were fit and fast enough to escape the predators. So that that's pretty good. That's about female choosiness. They're like, we like the one that could avoid the predators the best. So... But on the other hand, interesting. So that's that makes sense. But then, why do the yeah. females have splashy chests, right? So that's kind of strange. But they actually just have it on their front. So when they're sitting on the nest, she's usually the European robin is in thick undergrowth or garden hedge, which we'll talk about later. But her chest is against her eggs and not in view. And I can only assume that the American one is is similar. I don't, they do their nests higher up, but uh, the American one would be similar where you just can't see, you can't see the her chest when it's pressed against the eggs. So it doesn't, basically evolution doesn't weed out that trait because it's not a trait that is, that gets attacked. You know what I mean? So, right. Right. So it's just sort of hanging on. There's no reason for her to get rid of it, I guess. So. Interesting. Yeah, and then there is always the idea, which we've talked about before, that I've I've heard biologists occasionally talk about how red color, really strong, bright colors in, in birds could mean also that they are parasite-free, low on parasites, and their parasite load is, is low, which is another thing to attract a mate. Like, hello, ladies, I am parasite-free. Make babies with me. <laughs> So that might be it, too. Yeah, pretty cool. I'm going to give you a little bonus extra fact. So. Okay. Bonus fact. The reason that robins are called redbreast is because they were named by English-speaking people before they had a word in the language for orange. And this goes for anything that comes before the word for orange in the English language. So... That's why people are called redheads, even though their red hair is kind of orange. Um, it's because there was no word, there was no word for, for orange until English-speaking people got a hold of oranges, which was sometime, I believe, in the Renaissance, like late early modern period, somewhere in there. I'd have to look it up exactly, but once you had people getting oranges, then they had a word for orange, which is the name of the fruit. <laughs> so anything that's orange before then is just called red in the English language. Interesting. So that is, that is the reason. Wow. Yeah. 
That is so cool. It is. If you're like my wife, who's from Rhode Island, that word is pronounced orange. Orange. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Florida oranges. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) That's really cool. Well, I wanted to talk about colors of eggs. Eggies. So birds are not the only animals that lay colored eggs. Fish and frogs and insects lay colored eggs, but birds lay eggs in an almost endless variety of colors. European robins lay eggs that are tan with brown speckles, and American robin eggs are a shade of blue that is maybe the most unique shade of blue you've ever seen in your life. It's actually like a, you know, is it like a color of paint that you can get or something? It's robin's egg blue. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's its own thing. Yeah. So I want to talk for a few minutes about what these colors do or kind of why eggs are different colors from an evolutionary viewpoint and how that actual physical process works. So one of the main reasons eggs are colored is camouflage. Generally speaking, birds that nest low to the ground or on the ground are going to lay eggs with lots of earthy brown and tan colors with speckles and stripes to sort of blend in among grasses and rocks and pebbles And that makes it harder for the predators to see the eggs. And that is the case with the European robin. European robins are notorious for laying eggs in chicken coops and old shoes and wheelbarrows and buckets. And if they're if they're clothes on a clothesline, they will leg eggs in the pockets wherever (laughs) they can. They will lay eggs. (laughs) It's crazy. That's awesome. Another possible reason that eggs are pigmented in pattern is as a defense against brood parasitism. Some birds will lay their eggs in other bird nests as a way to get the host parents to raise their young. Cowbirds, for example, are notorious for this. And cuckoos. And cuckoos, yeah. And there are quite a few duck species that do it, too. You remember our ducks episode? Oh, you're right. Yeah. They're, They're little sneaky peats. Sneaky ducks. (laughs) So a female bird can look at the nest and say, hey, that's not my kid, and reject that egg or kick it out of the nest or whatever. It doesn't doesn't always work, but it happens. Helpful for sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. White eggs, incidentally, are generally laid by birds who lay their eggs inside of something. So they'll make their nests inside of a, a cavity or a little hidey hole. And those eggs are hidden from view, so they don't really need pigment. And it's thought that actually those white eggs show up better in a dark cavity so that the birds can find them easier. Mm -hmm. Now that blue-green coloration on eggs, like the kind that are laid by the American robin, act as a sunblock. So UV radiation from the sun can transmit through eggshells. The darker the eggshell, the less radiation gets through and the less light can get through. If you go too dark, then the egg can overheat, and that can cause a bunch of problems uh, ranging anything from making the egg hatch way too early or even killing the embryo inside. So that shade of blue on the robin's egg strikes a nice balance. It protects the embryo from UV radiation and bright light, but it doesn't let the egg get too hot. So... How this actually happens, how this works, is that birds have one ovary, 
which releases an ovum into the oviduct. And an egg starts as the yolk. That's the first bit of an egg that, that is produced. So it's just a blob of bright yellow protein. As it travels down the oviduct, it collects water, it collects the soft, stretchy membrane in layers, and that's the white of the egg. And as it travels further down the oviduct, special cells start adding a layer of calcium carbonate, and that's the shell. In the last few hours before the egg is laid, there are cells in the uterus that act like little paint guns, and they are genetically programmed to fire at a certain time. These cells produce two substances. One is called proto... proto I, I promise you, I, 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 <laughs> I practice this. Protoporphyrin. There we go. Protoporphyrin produces yellow, orange, red, and brown colors. And there is biliverdin, which produces shades of blue and green. So you have, you know, three or four different colors here. It's a pretty small palette, but different combinations and different concentrations of these two pigments are going to get you a wide variety of colors. Anything from pinks and greens and purples. Uh, Ostriches lay these really dark blue indigo eggs. All different colors and stripes and speckles and everything. It's amazing. A bird's age, health, and diet can affect the quality and the color of an egg. Um, Generally speaking, and I keep using that phrase because there's like a billion birds in the world. Healthy birds are going to lay eggs with harder shells and more intense pigment colors. So that's where colored eggs come from. Wee-hoo! Yeah. According to the IUCN, American and European robins are listed as of least concern. They're doing okay, but as with any animal, they are subject to the pressures of climate change, which is a real thing. And things like pesticide use, uh, feral cats or domestic cats that are let outside. Outdoor cats can kill a lot of birds. The estimate is a billion songbirds a year are killed by cats. Yep. And that's not to mention the mice and snakes and frogs and amphibians and whatever else the cat can get a hold of. A billion songbirds a year yep. is a lot. Yep. We love our key cats, but they are an invasive species, so we should yep. probably think about that a little bit. That's a big, huge yep. conversation, but yes, they are bird murderers. Bird murderers. <laughs> not mine, though. <laughs> they're not. They're lazy. They sit and look at the birds outside the window, and they don't even chatter. Seriously, they don't, they don't even chitter chatter at the birds. They just sit there filing their nails and going, "When's lunch?" <laughs> if you want to see robins for yourself, as I met, uh, mentioned earlier, you can have a bird feeder in your backyard. But you know, listen to Susie at the top of the show and do it responsibly, and make sure that you have the time to keep a bird feeder properly. Or else yes. you're just going to wind up getting those little birds sick and you're not helping them thrive at all. And you're not helping them reproduce and make little birds so that you can keep watching birds. Well, we are going to talk about robins and a couple other things. But first, we want to remind you that this podcast is listener supported through Patreon. This show is brought to you by listeners like you, just like PBS. The money we get from Patreon goes to hosting fees and we actually gave a little donation to Wikipedia a while back. And sometimes we give donations to wildlife conservation programs. And we do all sorts of little cool things with the money we get from Patreon. We really do appreciate the support. If you want to help us out, 
It's patreon.com slash varmints. Hey there, everyone. Paul and Don are a couple of nerds just like you, and they don't get to see animals up close and in person very often. So let's talk about where we all see them most of the time. On movies, TV, comic books, toys, and video games. All right. I had a difficult time with this decision, but I finally decided to go for it. I was thinking, do I really want to talk about this song? Surely everybody knows it by now. But you know what? I bet there are Varminians who don't know the song. So let's go ahead and talk about it. I'm talking about the song called Rockin' Robin by Bobby Day. It was released in 1958. It was written by a guy called Leon René, who used to be a big deal back in those Motown early rock and roll kind of days in the 50s. And it was Bobby Day's biggest single. It became a number two hit on the Billboard Hot 100, and it spent a week at the top of the charts as a number one hit in R&B sales. You might know that Michael Jackson recorded a version of the song in 1972, which achieved even greater success, which I don't understand because I like the original, but there you go. This is pretty interesting. Rock and Robin is in public domain. That's amazing. Yeah, nobody renewed the copyright. So if you are a musician and you want to record your own version of Rock and Robin, you can go for it. That just so a, a song that popular that is in the public domain just blows my mind. It does. It blows it blows me away. So we're just going to play the whole darn thing for you. That's right. Yes, we are. <laughs> How often do we get to do this? Yeah. I was first acquainted with this song on the American Graffiti soundtrack that my parents had on record when I was a little kid. And we used to, my sister and I used to dance all around the living room to this song. So let Hit it, dude! <laughs> Get out of your chair and shake your booty. Do it! Shake <laughs> your, your tail feathers. Yes! He rocks in the treetop all the day long. Hopping and a bopping and a singing his song. All the little Get your kids up and get them dancing. Love to hear the robin go tweet, 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 rock and robin. Tweet, 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 tweet
That is delightful. The little raven liked him because he outbopped the buzzard and the Oreo. <laughs> That's amazing. I know. And I just, so I, like I say, it just in 1950, whatever, when that song came out, they just, they just didn't renew the the copyright. No. Mm-mm. That's amazing. I wonder. I it makes me wonder how many other things are out there that are public domain that people just think are, are protected that aren't. Yeah, I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. I want to hear people's Verminians singing the Rock and Robin song, for sure. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing! If you want to record it and send it to us, we'll we'll put it in something. We'll find a reason. Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> and the grown-ups too. <laughs> if you do a if you do a version of Rock and Robin, send it to us, and we'll do it like as a bonus. Like this is a billion people singing Rock and Robin. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yes, please do that. Maybe we'll do a mix. We'll do like a like a like a mix of everybody singing rock and robin. Oh, that'd be so tree, much fun. Tree, 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 tree lead. <laughs> <laughs> Super fun and amazing. What you got there, dude? Well, I am gonna talk about Robin Hood. Robin Hood. Everybody knows Robin Hood. Yeah. Uh, robin Hood is a legendary outlaw originally depicted in English folklore. And then featured in tons and tons and tons of literature and TV and film and comic books and video games. And the list is just way too long for all the many places that you see Robin Hood. Over 30 different actors have portrayed Robin Hood over the years. And across all of these books and films, Robin Hood is portrayed as handsome, daring, a highly skilled swordsman and archer, and most importantly, a hero to the poor and oppressed. Oh, I didn't tell you the sword group I used to be in, the, the Renaissance Festival Performing Sword Group. Um, our, yeah. our, sh- our show was a Robin Hood show. So. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I didn't play a title character. I played a character we made up, I think. So. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. I think this is public domain, too. I think you can do whatever you want with Robin Hood. Yeah, pretty sure. <laughs> Robin Hood and his merry men rob from the rich and give to the poor. That's the that's the whole point of Robin Hood. Uh, we probably all know the story of Robin Hood. I'm not going to talk too much about that, but what I am going to talk about is the question, was there a real Robin Hood? Mm-hmm. There's a, a very, very good documentary about this, and it's hosted by a guy called Tony Robinson. You'll know him from the Black Adder series, if you are yes. an American who likes British TV. Yes. And uh, his documentary goes a little bit more in depth than my little segment on the podcast here, <laughs> but we'll 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 give you the little highlights. In English legal records from as early as the 13th century, the words "Rob Hod" and "Robin Hod" and other variations became common epithets for criminals, bandits, outlaws, and poachers. 
The first literary references to Robin Hood appear in a series of songs from the 14th and 15th centuries, and nobody knows for certain if there was a real Robin Hood, but there are a couple of good candidates. So there was a person called Robin of Loxley, and that's the name we associate most with Robin Hood. There's a village called Loxley in Yorkshire, but later writers used a little creative license and changed that to the village of Loxley in, gonna have to help me, Nottingham, Nottinghamshire? Nottinghamshire. Nottinghamshire. Yeah. There's also a village of Loxley in Warwickshire, where a knight named Robert Fitz Odo lived. And he was excommunicated in order to pay reparations for his part in sacking Nottingham in 1140. So he was like, he was a bad guy. (laughs) (laughs) There was also a fugitive named Robert Hodd, who lived in the early 13th century. He was nicknamed Habahad. And then there was another guy called Robert of Weatherby. And he was described as an outlaw and evildoer of our land. Whoa. Yeah. There's another guy and his name was Robert Dayville. And a guy called the Earl of Leicester died in the Battle of Evesham in 1265. Robert Dayville and his brother were forced to become outlaws. Robert's brother was pardoned, but Robert remained in the forests. And there was another Robert, a guy named Robert Godbird. He also fled to the forest of Sherwood after that Earl died. So you have two fugitives named Robert in that forest. Uh, Robert Godbird, legend has it that he had a band of 100 men who had come to his aid at a moment's notice. And that he also had some run-ins with the Sheriff of Nottingham. The, The Sheriff of Nottingham is the main bad guy in all the Robin Hood stories. Then there was a guy, his name was Folk Fizz Warren III. He was a companion of King John in his childhood, but later on the king gave Folk's castle away to another man. Folk did not take too kindly to this, so he did what you do to people who are trespassing in your castle. Uh, He killed him. He became an outlaw, and he hid in the Shropshire Forest, and he spent his days ambushing and robbing, until one day he came upon King John himself. Folk supposedly struck a deal for a pardon with the king, and he was eventually pardoned in 1203. That's another thing that you see in the Robin Hood stories a lot, is Robin Hood hanging out in the forest waiting for people to come by, and he offers them a meal, and then sort of holds them hostage. (laughs) So who is the real Robin Hood? Uh, People don't know. They really don't know. The most likely story is that you have a few guys who are all kind of criminals and fugitives. You blend all of their qualities together. You add a little bit of legendary folktale magic and some tall tales, and you get the character of Robin Hood, you know, partially based in reality, partially based in fiction and imagination. And it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a fairly common literary device. To take a whole bunch of stories and smoosh them into one. Pretty common. Yep. And very cool. No reason not to do it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The better the story is, it doesn't matter, right? That's it. Yeah, very cool. And Robin Hood is a classic story. Just a classic story. Yeah, Robin Hood story is fun. Do you remember what the first Robin Hood you experienced was, either film or literature? It would have to be the Disney movie. I think. Okay. For me. Yeah. What about you? Mine was the Errol Flynn. Oh, no. I Now I have memories of that on television as reruns. So I probably couldn't say whether it was the cartoon or the other thing. I, I don't really 
I don't think I have a reliable memory, but I loved Olivia de Havilland, who was in that. Oh yeah. yeah, you know I didn't I didn't see the Disney Robin Hood movie until I had kids. Oh yeah, yeah, but on um, one of the cable channels, I think it was the Turner Turner Broadcasting TBS. Sure, yeah, yeah, they would always have the uh, Errol Flynn Robin Hood movie on. Yeah. So that was my first Robin Hood. Well, we had old movies on our local television station here quite a bit. So um, my mother and I used to watch a ton of old movies together just on our local station. I'm sure I saw it on there. So Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> Old Errol Flynn Robin Hood with the, the bright green tights and the cap <laughs> with the feather in it. Yes. Dr- dressed like no realistic... <laughs> human who lives in the woods would dress <laughs> yeah. even as a kid that cracked me up like okay this guy's a fugitive living in the woods how is he dressed like that how does he say stay so neat and clean <laughs> like those tights magic. don't have any holes in them he's <laughs> yeah. magic that's why because <laughs> he's a legendary guy and he's played by earl flynn and so he's magic doesn't matter <laughs> Mummy, what's for dinner? It's the elbow of a snake. Mummy, I can't eat that. Well, would you eat that? So what do you think, Donna? I'm thinking no, because it's kind of Roman emperor kind of food. (laughs) Bring me the robins dipped in honey. (laughs) And the otter's noses. The otter's noses. Don't you remember that in Life of Brian? Yes. (laughs) Splitters. Oh, no, robins are protected, so we cannot eat robins, even if we wanted to. They're too small. Yeah. I mean, even American robins being kind of big seemed too small to me. Yeah, there's probably not a whole lot of meat on them. Although they were at one time a popular food item. People did eat them. Yeah. Yeah, there's a recipe in Wayman's cookbook. Uh, It was published in 1890. And it was a a recipe for robin pie. And the instructions were... Yeah, the instructions were cover the bottom of a pie dish with... Thin slices of beef and fat bacon, over which lay 10 or 12 robins, previously rolled in flour, stuffed as above. Season with a teaspoon of salt, a quarter ditto of pepper, one of chopped parsley, and one of chopped escalots. Lay a bay leaf over, add a gill of broth, and cover with three quarters of a pound of half-puff paste. Bake one hour in a moderate oven. Shake well to make the gravy in the pie form a kind of sauce and serve quite hot. Mm. I would assume that they that they would pluck the birds before doing all this, but it sounds like they went in bones and all. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. I would hope they would pull the feathers off and, and get the, the guts and get out. The little, and get the pin feathers off of there. Yeah. Like the little... Yeah. I don't know, man. It was 1890. I don't know. Maybe they just ate the whole bird. 1890. Yeah. Weirdos. (laughs) The past is the worst, isn't it? It really is. I love history, but it's the worst. Didn't they have chickens in 1890? I'm sure they did. (laughs) I'm sure they did. 
course, chickens haven't always been like a main dish kind of food for Europeans, so I don't know when they started being popular. I don't but know. But it has to be by 1890, sure. Right? Right? Of course. Wouldn't you think? <laughs> I don't know. Well, we may have to do another chickens episode and folk, and real focus oh, hard no. on some historical stuff, you know. Chickens part three. <laughs> the chickening. Well, we had the chickening was part two. Oh, that's right. That was part so two. I, I don't know what the third would be. <laughs> Forever chicken. <laughs> chicken apocalypse. Chicken apocalypse. Ah! <laughs> I don't know. But we might as well. There was enough. But yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't eat robins just to sum no. it up. Well, here's what is eating robins. Just about anything that eats birds or bird eggs is they're they're eating robins. So, opossums, skunks, raccoons, larger birds, snakes, uh, feral cats. What else is there? All that stuff. Bears probably. Probably a bear is eating on some robin right now. Anybody's cat that's outside. Anybody's cat that's outside. Please keep your cats inside. <laughs> they eat robins. They eat robins. <laughs> <laughs> Your next door neighbor kitty probably ate some. Oh, except you don't have them there. Never mind. <laughs> nope, we don't have them. If we did, he probably would. Mm -hmm. The wizard. <laughs> the wizard. <laughs> <laughs> Is your brain a repository of useless information? Well, let's help everyone win that next trivia night. Or just sound smarter than the rest of the room with the animal fact of the week. All right, Donna, it's spring break here in the Northern Hemisphere for the robins, and American robins are getting drunk as hell. They're getting drunk? They are. Little drunk burps? <laughs> well, they eat berries, and berries are a food source for robins and other birds, but if they ferment, they begin to produce alcohol, and you wind up with birds who are unstable, unafraid to approach predators and humans, and unfortunately, they fly into windows, too. So, huh. drunk robins walking around. <laughs> Tearing it up. <laughs> What's up, guys? <laughs> <laughs> I've had a few bears too many. <laughs> there was a cute little memo that was put out by the Gilbert Police Department in October of 2018. And I'll read it for you. Mm. It says the Gilbert Police Department has received several reports of birds that appear to be under the influence flying into windows, cars, and acting confused. The reason behind this occurrence is certain berries we have in our area have fermented earlier than usual due to an early frost, which in turn has expedited the fermenting process. Many birds have not migrated south, so it appears to be more prevalent than in past years. It appears that some birds are getting a little more tipsy than normal. Generally, younger birds' livers cannot handle the toxins as efficiently as more mature birds. There is no need to call law enforcement about these birds, as they should sober up within a short period of time. However, we would like you to call the Gilbert Police Department if you see the following. Heckle and Jekyll walking around being boisterous or playing practical jokes. Woodstock pushing Snoopy off the doghouse for no apparent reason. The Roadrunner jumping in and out of traffic on Main Street. Big Bird operating a motor vehicle in an unsafe manner. Angry Birds laughing and giggling uncontrollably and appearing to be happy. Tweety acting as if 10 feet tall and getting into confrontations with cats and any other birds after midnight with Taco Bell items. <laughs> I actually Googled how to help a drunk bird, which is something I never thought I'd do. 
Uh, basically, what you want to do is ask the nearest wildlife doctor and let them handle it. Let professionals take care of the the little drunk birdie. If somehow that isn't possible, you can very gently scoop up a drunk bird with a towel. Don't put your gross human hands on it. Uh, put the bird in a nice, dark, quiet place. They recommended like a uh, an animal kennel or just a small little box with some air holes. Uh, check on it every 10 or 15 minutes, and when it looks like it's sobered up, you just release it. Huh. Yeah. Back back to where you found it, presumably. Back where you found it, exactly. Yeah. Right. There, there's a really delightful little blog post from a birder called Sharon Birdchick Stetler, who wrote about helping a drunk cedar waxwing sober up and fly away, and it's really fun and funny and, and a cute little read, so we'll put that in the uh. show notes. Oh, poor little berry nomers. <laughs> they didn't know it was going to be alcoholic. <laughs> poor little guys. Well, I was going to talk about this little thing that'll be mostly familiar to our listeners in Great Britain, but Americans should find it interesting as well, just because if they like stuff that's British, which I do. So in Britain, there is no bird that is more associated with Christmas than the robin. Which seems a little odd because there are a lot of birds that are in the winter time that hang out in Britain. There's there's a lot of them. So why the robin in particular? And it seems to be that it was because Christmas cards were really popularized in the Victorian era, in the late Victorian. And the postmen that used to deliver the Christmas cards used to wear these red jackets. And so they associated them with, they start calling them Robins because they were delivering the Christmas cards. And uh, and they just sort of got swished together, squished together, and, and there you go. So that's why there's Robins all over Christmas cards. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that is That was curious to me because I was like, there's a lot of birds. When I was there, I was there over Christmas when I lived there. Which, just as a side note... For those of you who celebrate Christmas, if you can do it in Britain, do so, because it's a whole other deal, and it's very fun. So, uh, it's, it's really fun. A lot of little fun traditions that we don't do here. Fun little cr- Christmas crackers, and crazy jokes, and just silliness. It's very, very fun. <laughs> anyway, and Christmas pudding, which I think is wonderful, and some Americans will go, ew, but trust me, it's really good. What is it? It's a... It's like um, a, it's like a, a, what do you call the cake that people turn their noses up over here that they, they like go? Like fruit cake? Fruit cake, yes. It's like a fruit cake, but they prepare it correctly. The reason that we don't like it is because we don't do it right. Um, you're supposed to be soaking it in booze. I was going to say. And <laughs> all sorts of stuff yeah. before you eat it over Christmas, and it's lovely, so... You can eat it with some custard or not, just on its own. But you're supposed to be feeding it with some booze. Um, Rum is what I've seen used, but they might do brandy as well, I would imagine. It probably just depends on the family. But ah, we are definitely wildly off topic there. But but yeah, but robins will be on the Christmas cards over there. And I was like, why are there robins all over the Christmas cards? You know, because... I just had thought that was a little weird, but there you go. That's that's what they're all about. To if you want to read about the robin, you can read a book by a man called Stephen Moss, who is a guy that participates in a British show called Weather Watch or uh, 
Yes, it's called Weather Watch. And then they do like Spring Watch, Winter Watch, whatever. And they, they get on and they talk about the critters that you're going to see in your environment in Britain for the time of year that they're talking about, right? Okay. And so he wrote a book about the robin, the robin, a biography. And he talks about their evolution and where they live and their hangout in mainland Europe and what they do in Britain and how you can see them and what they're all about. So please look that up and check it out if you like robins. Very cool. I do like robins. Yeah, me too. I'm going to read the book. (laughs) Well, thanks everybody for listening. We do appreciate it. This show has been brought to you with technical support by Matthew Chomo. Bed music by Kevin McLeod. Our logo was created by Imran Javed. Our vocal talent today was Carrie McGinnis and Stacy and Frosty. Woohoo! All right, it's time for the Rugrat Corner. If you have a Rugrat eight years of age or younger who wants to be on our podcast, send us a message on Facebook or email us at varmintspodcast at gmail.com. For details, we make it super easy for you and your Ruggie to hear their voice on the podcast. So who do we have this week? Today we have Logan. Logan has something to say about Robins. Logan! Hello, my name is Logan. I'm going to talk about Robins. They like very blue eggs. What else do you know about Robins? They eat juicy worms. They do? (laughs) And what kind of songs do they sing? (laughs) Uh, they, they, they have a red tummy, a very red tummy. Robins live in nest. Hey. This is a nest. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Logan. Thank you. (laughs) That's awesome. Oh, I forgot to mention, I will just mention it briefly. They're not related to... Robins, American or European, but there is a pink robin in Australia that you should look at. It's still part of the passerine group, so they're, you know, on the same general group of birds as as our robins are. But they're not directly related, but we're never going to mention them on any other show, so you should look at them. The pink robin in Australia. Just look it up. Let me it, see. It, it's worth your time. Real, Go look real them quick. Up. Okay. Australian. Get ready for the cuteness. Pink robin. Australian pink robin. Oh, my God. I know. At what? <laughs> Stop with this bird right now. He's How is that a real bird? I don't know, but it's very cute. <laughs> that looks like a cartoon bird. <laughs> it is not. It's a really real, real bird. That is insane. We will Can you put imagine how disco it looks in UV light? <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> that is crazy. Totally crazy, right? Occasionally, I put pictures of animals on our Twitter account, and I with the uh, with the caption, you know, on this installment of "How the hell is this a real animal?" Mm-hmm, and then I'll yeah. <laughs> I'll post a picture of something like this thing. I, I'm definitely going to put this on Twitter. That's amazing. Yes. He's a real, really real little bird. Cool. Little burp, cute burp. Any hoodly doodlies. Thank you, Logan. <laughs> yes, thanks, Logan. And uh, his mom is Trisha from the Two Girls on a Bench podcast, which Woo-hoo. is about writing. It's about creative writing and eating snacks, and it's a lot of fun, and it's funny, and it's not necessarily for 
for kids. Well, not at all for kids, but it's funny and uh, I like it a lot. Check it out. Yeah. Thanks everybody again for listening and until next time. Be nice to animals. Tweet. Tweet. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at podfix on Twitter, official underscore podfix on Instagram, at podfixnetwork on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.